people are ready. There's no barrier to entry. If I had to pick one, diet or exercise, I would pick exercise. Many women that are afraid they are going to become bulky, how many bulky women do you know? We talk about protein as if it's one thing. With plant sources of proteins comes a lot of carbs and you have to balance it. I'm your host, Sarah Ann Macklin, and I'm on a mission to uncover the maze of health myths around nutrition and well-being, and guide you through my seven pillars of health. Join me on a journey of discovery and connection, and pull up a pew for a front row seat to the most exclusive health conversations of our time. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Weight loss is at the forefront of so many health conversations, but there is so much misinformation surrounding it. But I want you to think about this. What if we shifted the focus from what we can lose to what we can gain? For me, and lots of other women out there, I was always terrified that lifting weights would make me bulky. But my guest today, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, wants to change this narrative. There is now a huge amount of scientific research showing that building good quality muscle is one of the best ways that we can actually improve our metabolic health, our lifespan, and also, ultimately, lose weight. Dr. Lyon is a world-leading expert in muscle-centric medicine to promote weight loss and shift our body's composition. She believes that highlighting muscle as the target for better health, that you can positively focus on what you need to gain instead of what you need to lose. The most meaningful aspect of this is really about the mission. People are ready. They are ready to hear about strength. They're ready to hear about that we have the capacity to change and become strong and it's never too late and people are ready for it. Now, she is the author of a brand new book called Forever Strong, which focuses on how to reboot your metabolism, build strength and even extend your lifespan. I started our conversation on why muscle building is such a powerful tool towards a healthy weight loss. So I'm so excited to have you here today. And like we've just literally said, as we're about to start the episode, how people are kind of ready for this revolution of your new book, which I just couldn't get my hands on. And I really want to start off today's episode with why should we be focusing more on the quality of our muscles for health, as well as, and this is the big one, for weight loss as well. Because I grew up in an era, and maybe there's still an era of this today, many women are scared to build muscle because they feel that it can lead to weight gain. So let's just start off there. For the last 50 years or so, we have been hyper-focused on this idea of obesity. And you and I both know where that's gotten us. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, we've gotten sicker, we've gotten fatter, we've gotten weaker. There has been no positive momentum by focusing on what we have to lose. When we begin to shift the perspective, what is it that we have to gain? What can we do that will create momentum to allow us to become strong and capable and focus on mm -hmm. what we have to gain, which quite simply is skeletal muscle. There's the physiology behind it, the biology, and which cannot be pushed off to the side there is a mental framework component that rides along with these physiological changes. Ultimately, we have a comprehensive program of how to become the most resilient human possible. We're going to cover so much, but actually, I also love that you include resilience in your book, by the way. I love that that's one of kind of your key power five mindset traits that we're going to get onto because so much around this also includes our mindset. And that's why I really wanted to start with this kind of just banishing any worries around gaining muscle is gaining weight because I'll tell you why I think I've got a bit of PTSD from it so back in kind of my heightened modeling days and I was living in New York I grew up a runner um, mm. and a dancer and when you do ballet you've got quite a lot of muscle especially in your thighs and I loved running and I got told from my agents in New York to stop running to stop training to stop exercising because I got too muscly I got too defined you know and it was more towards eat less eat these low calorie foods would well, basically just don't really eat very much. And that was kind of how the perception was for me back then. And obviously now going on my own journey, realizing just how important muscle mass is for our health and also our IQ, which still blows my mind. You know, how can we start kind of like 
re-navigating this area of health, especially for women. I think you sharing your story is profound and incredible. We, as humans, we are tribal in nature and we learn from other people. We learn from our okay. experience, but we also learn from other people's experiences. So I absolutely applaud you for putting that out there and being open enough to talk about it because that's actually what moves the needle for people. The okay. first silo that I think that we should tackle is a little bit about the history the societal or cultural narrative about being skinny and it is not attractive for women to be big and bulky, etc. The idea that there is a little bit of diet PTSD, I think is totally true. And I have seen it. Mm -hmm. I've experienced it. We, especially within your profession, it's how can we lose more weight? Doesn't talk about the quality mm -hmm. of the weight. Perhaps they didn't want you to be defined. They really wanted you to be skinny. And I think a lot of young women experience that. Mm -hmm. Now, that is a occupational hazard, perhaps, which I think maybe is changing. You know, we see a lot of transition to different body types now. But that perspective of, quote, being skinny, nothing could be more destructive to not only the physicality of the individual, but also bone health, muscle health mm -hmm. over time. One way to take back the narrative is to understand that strength is everything and muscle is really the pinnacle of health and wellness. Just to put into perspective, you putting on muscle where your modeling counterparts may not have put on muscle so easily, if we were to take your body out to the general population or just anywhere, they would probably not say, wow, she looks like a bodybuilder. Totally not. It, it would not. And it, it most likely wouldn't have even been a thought. The question becomes, is part of that narrative just pervasive? In my mind, it's very pervasive. Mm -hmm. They told you to work out less so that, in essence, you would have unhealthy skeletal muscle because there's no such thing as sedentary healthy skeletal muscle. By the way, skeletal muscle requires movement for health and well-being. Skeletal muscle is, a, it is an endocrine organ. When you contract skeletal mm -hmm. muscle, secretes myokines. It does a plethora of things related to health and wellness. One of the worst things somebody could do would be to not exercise their skeletal muscle. In fact, if I had to pick one, diet or exercise, I would pick exercise, which I, I think is um, surprising to some people. Yeah. The other flip side to what we're talking about is many women that are afraid they are going to become bulky, it will never happen. It takes so much effort and energy to put on skeletal muscle mass. And quite frankly, if a woman were to take a step back and say, okay, there are so many bulky women. How many bulky women do you know? Zero. Hardly any. In my mind, part of that may be a distraction, right? It, it may not even be a real thing. It potentially is a distraction mm -hmm. or an excuse because it is very uncomfortable. But I think if we could correct one thought process that I think is absolutely erroneous, and that is this idea that women are going to get bulky. Women are going to put on not nearly as much mass as a man, it just physically is much more challenging. Sarah, I'm so sorry to cut in, but since Live Well, Be Well is all about health and well-being, I need to tell you what great mental shape I'm in today. Since we started producing this podcast, it seems that you've been on quite a health journey. And seeing you blossom honestly fills me with joy. My sleep cycle's on point. My gut microbiome is in better shape than ever. I'm even doing HIIT workouts. Can you believe it? But the reason I rudely interrupted this interview is to tell you about the adaptogenic coffee that you've suggested to me earlier this week, which contains lion's mane mushroom and rhodiola. Two things I personally don't know much about. Perhaps you can enlighten me. Science shows that lion's mane mushroom is known to improve memory, mental clarity, concentration, and overall, just your brain health. And rhodiola is a powerful adaptogen known for its effects on stress levels and brain functioning. Okay, that's all sounding very exciting indeed. And I can confirm these shroomy coffees are absolutely delicious. And they come in these single sachets, which is incredibly convenient. But I don't really understand what makes them so special. So what exactly is adaptogenic coffee? The medicinal mushrooms and coffee are probably one of the most perfect pairings. You get all the benefits of regular coffee, which we do love, whilst minimizing any side effects. So why does this happen? I know you're gonna ask. Caffeine is a nootropic. It increases our alertness and our attention. But many of us will have experienced the increased levels of the stress hormone cortisol, which results in sadly the jitters, and anxiety. This has 100% worked wonders for me this week. So where can people get them? 
Okay, so if you want to try these at home, we have a special discount code from the amazing brand, London Nootropics, and they have three different blends to choose from. So listen up, Sam. Here is your mix. You can have Zen. It's probably the most balancing. It's great if you're caffeine sensitive. Then you've got Mojo. This is perfect for that natural boost. If you're feeling a bit fatigued, it makes a really good pre-workout because of the cordyceps and also, get this, the Siberian ginseng. And my favourite, to experience the effects of lion's mane and rhodiola, get yourself some of the Flow Blend. We've got a bit of a treat for the listeners, right? A discount code? Yes, we do, Sam. And I know that you love it because you love a discount. So all you need to do is use the code LIVEWELLBEWELL to get... 20% off at londonutropics.com. A box of each blend is only £15, so you're kind of getting a very good deal here. And subscriptions start at £12 a month, delivered straight to your door. I'm just so glad that we're starting it here because I just don't want anyone to listen to this and think this is going to be a barrier to entry and looking at their muscle and skeletal health because it is so important. And by the way, I did a good resistance training just before I'm so I came proud on of you. this podcast. So <laughs> I'm so proud of you, ladies. <laughs> this is amazing. This And, and, what, and um, what is so inspiring is that you're going to get other women to do it because it's the way of the future. You're going to get other women to do it from your we, fantastic new book. We. This is a team effort. This is a we thing. This is true. I'll take as much nutrition as I can. Let's start on the fitness though, because you just said that you would actually, if you had food and, and fitness and exercise and movement, and we do a lot on this podcast around exercise and movement, and we do a lot towards mental health actually and how kind of exercise and support your mental well-being. But let's just really hone in on this for our muscle and skeletal health. What would you recommend people do once a week, once a day, how many times a day should they be doing it? And what should they be doing when it comes to exercise for their muscle health and their skeletal health? Let's take a step back and let's say that there's multiple ways to get the result that we want. And the result that okay. we want is uh, a fewfold. Number one, ultimately, it's adaptation, whether it's strength, whether it's endurance, whether it's power or force, it's some kind of physical adaptation. We are not mm -hmm. training to be good at exercise. We are training to be more efficient and effective at life. We are not training to be better at exercise. So that is number one. Everybody needs to hear that because this will provide a foundational shift for how you think about movement. The average individual is not exercising. So here in America, we would have 50% of Americans are not exercising. The current recommendation is 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity with two days a week of some kind of resistance training. Mm -hmm. That's the same in the UK. Yeah, maybe 25% of people are doing that. The amount of exercise, you're talking about 30 minutes of movement, five days a week, five to seven days a week. We know that the baseline recommendation is probably just enough to maintain some kind of health. What I mm -hmm. suggest is that every individual starts with resistance training, especially mm -hmm. as individuals age, there's no replacing it. Resistance training includes moving anything against force. This can be, if we were to think about it in a stepwise approach, can be body weight, push-ups. You have to be able to get up off the floor. Remember, we are training to be better at life. Push up mm -hmm. off the floor, sit to stand, doing a squat, having lower body strength being able to do push-up, sit-up, sit-up, you know, maybe, maybe not. You know, some people have challenges with their back, but definitely lunging, some type of bodyweight exercise. Again, you're going for fatigue. You're going for the amount of effort. The second layer to that would be moving to bands, resistance bands. My dad here is visiting from Ecuador. He hasn't lifted a weight in quite some time. He, we have him doing, he's going to train with me in the morning. He's doing resistance bands. There's no barrier to entry. I love that you had mm -hmm. mentioned that. There is no barrier to entry for physical activity. Doing bands, mm -hmm. and again, that could be squat, it could be overhead press, it could be a rope, it could be anything. You can be creative. And then ultimately, moving to some kind of uh, machines. I do think machines are very valuable and very safe. There's a, I had a great guy on my uh, podcast. His name was Pat Davidson. He's a PhD. And we talked all about the utilization of machines, which frequently can get a bad rap. And then finally, well, two, two more components would be moving to free weights, also very valuable mm -hmm. moving weights in space. And then kettlebells. Kettlebells are probably one of the most functional pieces of equipment that we have because in real mm -hmm. life, we carry things, we lift things overhead. Mm -hmm. You should be able to use them for rotation and swing things. And I recommend three days a week of some kind of 
form of resistance depending on where you fall into place. Whether you mm-hmm. are new to training or advanced, three days a week of exercise. And you know, for maintenance, you're looking at 10 sets per muscle group. I think that a trainer or coach is really the bridge and they are the most important asset that any physician has is to get with a good trainer to work on a program for their clients. So you trainers out there listening, you guys are the key. You're the magic sauce. Again, three days a week, 10 sets per muscle group to four maintenance. The other thing people should begin to think is is skill acquisition. So for example, mm-hmm. I'm working on a overhead snatch. I'm working on mm-hmm. a clean and press. I have no skill in these things. How can we continue our skill acquisition. Interesting. Okay, so there's two different dynamics there. And then when people are thinking about this, okay, I'm going to do exactly what Dr. Leon says. I'm going to do three days a week of resistance training, 10 sets of sets for each muscle group. What should they be thinking the other day? Because you keep saying it's not about the exercise. It's not about the movement. It's about kind of like the longevity of your health and your life. So when people are thinking about when they're actively doing this, what is going on in their muscle groups when they're putting their muscles under a massive amount of strain and stress to obviously break down and repair again? Yeah, there is some very well-documented adaptations that happen. There's muscular adaptations that if someone is interested in in exercise physiology could definitely look up. What I'm going to highlight is more of the medical aspect. And those things, Mm -hmm. I think, are very underrepresented in the conversation. For Mm -hmm. example, when you contract skeletal muscle, you release myokines. Myokines are molecules that uh, travel throughout the body. They interface with the liver. They interface with the bone. They interface with the brain. They do things that make you better stronger and smarter, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. It is skeletal muscle that is acting as an endocrine organ and releasing these hormone-like molecules throughout the body based on the intensity and duration of your activity. You have cognitive control over an organ system. For example, you can't think your liver to produce more enzymes. You could, unless you are Wim Hof, probably not sit here and tell your heart to beat at 137 and a half beats per minute. You just couldn't. Let's say you could, quote, slow your heart rate down. It is not the same voluntary control. For example, cardiac muscle is not considered a muscle under voluntary control, whereas skeletal muscle is an organ system under voluntary control. I can say I'm going to contract my bicep. I can, you know, point my finger. The other aspect of skeletal muscle is when you're contracting skeletal muscle, you know, this idea of body composition and utilization of substrates like glucose, fatty acids, and amino acids, when you exercise you no longer require insulin to move glucose out of the bloodstream into cells. When we fast forward and think about the diseases of aging, like cardiovascular disease, like let's even say PCOS with fertility, metabolic issues like Alzheimer's or obesity, insulin resistance, these diseases, many of them begin in skeletal muscle decades before. And one way to accelerate these issues or make them worse and generate low-grade inflammation would be to have sedentary skeletal muscle. When you are exercising skeletal muscle, you are increasing flux. You are increasing this utilization of glucose. You are no longer, it's like a, a swimming pool or a, um, a pond. You are emptying the pond. You're filtering the pond. We know what happens when a pond gets stagnant, that eventually a pond gets full, has lots of bacteria. It's super gross. Then there's nowhere for the water to go. The water ends up spilling all over. And that's what happens to skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle no longer, if you think about it like a pond, no longer has clear water. It becomes very murky. And the same thing happens to skeletal muscle. So when an individual is going to exercise, in my mind, they are thinking about the mind-muscle connection. They are thinking about Mm. the action that they are taking to complete the task at hand. They are thinking that they are getting better at the physicality of life because we exist within this plane. We must be able to navigate within it. Number two, they know that they are improving their metabolic efficiency. They are Mm -hmm. getting glucose into the cells. They are also managing the health of their mitochondria, which is related to energy and ATP production, all of which decline as we age. So in essence, we are talking about this elixir of longevity, which is truly exercise. The influence of exercise has a whole body impact on all of the homeostatic mechanisms. Nothing is more influential than exercise. It affects HDLs. It affects LDLs. It affects triglycerides, blood glucose, fasting insulin levels. Um, A single bout of exercise 
will have lasting effects. Obviously, it is cumulative over time, but one single bout of exercise will have effects. I talk about this in the book that, for example, let's say you had a continuous glucose monitor on and you ate a big lunch and there was a lot of carbohydrates. Let's say you were to actually do that. You will see blood sugar go down in real time as soon as you get up and move, do 10 air squats. I absolutely love interviews like this one, which give you so much useful advice for your own life. And if it's helped you, this is an invitation to join my inner circle. It will give you exclusive access to a host of things, expert written articles, nutritious, delicious recipes, your own members hub newsletter, podcast plus, and also products and discounts decided by me for you. For one very small investment, it will help guide and support your health. If you use the code SAMCOMMUNITY, you can get 20% off your Inner Circle membership. Just head to www.sarahannmacklin.com. Yeah. Do you know what? Dr. Mindy talked about this when she came onto the show, actually, about just actually moving and doing even squats at home post-eating. And actually, so much about us now, I guess, is maybe eating at our desk eating dinner in front of the TV and just these even simple things of moving the body is such a fantastic response, especially to a high carbohydrate meal, as you just said. And you've said so many things just there. I'm going to try and like break it down. There's just so much in there that I want our listeners to really try and grasp and understand. But I think one thing that they might be confused on, but what are some of the indications that people can look at themselves and understand if they've got a low muscle mass or a good muscle mass? Because that's really the baseline, right? Everyone's gonna go, okay, well, where am I on this scale? Because when we think about weight, we just step on a scale. But when it comes to muscle, unless you know, you're really sitting there like one of the gym bros flexing your muscles and saying, yeah, I've got an amazing muscle mass. How does one know if they've got a good or bad muscle mass? Wonderful question and not one that I think that we will be able to answer directly yet. There are a couple things that we have to recognize that skeletal muscle does. Number one, skeletal muscle is responsible for strength, mobility, flexibility, endurance, again, force production. That is one way that we can test muscle health. When we think about a biomarker of muscle health, do you have enough? Is it healthy? Would be looking at metrics. How fast can you run a mile? How many push-ups can you do? And again, it's important to recognize that these statements are not perfect because what if I was someone who was training on doing push-ups for the last five years, but I haven't done a squat or a pull-up versus somebody else was training in a different mod- modality. So we have to recognize that these are broad generalizations and it's the concepts that we have to understand. Mm-hmm. One measure would be physical. How much can you squat? How much can you bench press? How fast can you run a mile? The other markers for skeletal muscle health would be what is your fasting blood sugar? What is your what are your triglyceride levels? Are they under 100? Is your fasting blood sugar within a reasonable range? Let's say it's between 75 and 90. Those are all things that are important to recognize because again, skeletal muscle is a site of disposal. When skeletal muscle is unhealthy, this is one of the most early indications of challenges that we are going to see. One thing that is valuable is to always strive for more healthy skeletal muscle. It is always going to be more challenging as we age. It's just the reality of it. And we want to think about skeletal muscle as a reservoir. The more healthy skeletal muscle mass you have, the better off that you're going to be, the better your survivability. It's not if, it's when something happens and your capacity needs to be able to match whatever you interface with. For example, let's say you get pneumonia. Let's say you break a hip. Your body will pull from skeletal muscle. It is an amino acid reservoir. Uh, I know that that wasn't a direct answer to your question of how do we know? And I would say always strive for more. But you certainly know that it is unhealthy if you are weak or you are frail. And you struggle to do a lot of like squats and movement and those type of things are quite a good early indicator that actually maybe you don't have as much muscle mass as you think. But you talked about some blood work there. So what would be your kind of take home for people listening and going, okay, this has been really inspiring. I actually want to figure out how can I do this so we don't create that barrier. Is there a simple kind of three-step things that people could do to go and test this? One sounds like blood work or a glucose monitor to me. Oh, yeah. Mirror test. And I cover all of this. Uh, in the book, yes, fasting insulin, fasting glucose, and triglycerides. Those three would be great and easy to test for. Another thing would be, again, you had mentioned the waist to height ratio. So the lower, the better, 0.5 or less, or waist to hip ratio. Those are things that definitely 
everyone can do. The other thing is potentially a DEXA. That's the best of what we have right now. Eventually, mm-hmm. individuals, I think DEXA is around to stay for a very long period of time. I don't believe that it is the most effective measurement. Um, and I think that it has created some challenges within the field because it's created this divorcing of muscle mass and strength because we haven't been measuring skeletal muscle mass directly. Mm. The ways in which we would do that would be CT or MRI. That is not population available. So the DEX is the best that we've got. And you can go and see that by going to see a nutritionist and going to a clinic and actually asking for one. Yeah. That's the best way to get one. So we've we spoke a little bit about there about, you know, how can we look at the indications for muscle mass and, and skeletal muscle? And we and you touched upon, you know, three days a week of resistance training and how we can start approaching this. But let's go to nutrition, my favorite. <laughs> Let's get into the other side of the argument as well around this. So in the UK, and I think it's really similar in the US actually, and I did look at the and I did look at the um, intakes in the US, but it's recommended for around 56 grams a day for men and 45 grams a day for women of protein. Okay, that is what the British Dietetic Association talk about when we look at protein intakes. Yours is very different, and you talk about it really well in the book, and you go into how much protein we should be having. And you recommend around 30 to 50 grams of high quality protein. That's also a really important kind of term just to reference that high quality protein. We're going to go into that a bit more. So people might be shocked. They might also be on board already with this information. But talk to me about your philosophy on why it's 30 to 50 grams per meal, primary meal. So let's just say three meals a day. When we talk about protein, we have to talk about what can we say that is evidence-based and that has some outcome of meaning. If you were to think about nitrogen balance studies, they were trying to figure out the minimum amount of protein and the cheapest way to feed these soldiers, these 18-year-old males, to mitigate the amount of protein, to optimize for carbohydrates because it's cheap. And that's where they came up with the minimum amount of dietary protein necessary to prevent deficiencies. To me, Nitrogen balance is not an outcome. The idea that someone would say, okay, well, this is the minimum to prevent deficiencies based on a nitrogen balance. I don't know where anything in medicine is based on a nitrogen balance. You're asking, why am I talking about that? Because it puts into perspective this whole conversation about how are you getting 30 to 50 grams? This amount of protein seems like it's a lot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Nitrogen balance is not a health outcome that we use or recognize versus muscle protein synthesis, which is a health outcome over time. It is muscle protein synthesis is the incorporation of amino acids into skeletal muscle that over time is believed to help prevent and protect against sarcopenia, to help manage lean body mass and skeletal muscle health. That for me is the outcome that I'm looking for. Therefore, 30 to 50 grams of dietary protein is what in the literature has been shown, especially if someone is older, more mature, over the age of 30, that will create that stimulus. And that is what I would base skeletal muscle health on. And that is where I base the recommendations, the way in which the recommendations come from. 30 to 50 grams at the first meal is probably the most important. And that's where we have all of the data because a first meal effect is much easier than later on Uh, looking at at other meals. When an individual is coming out of an overnight fast, this the body is primed to have a an action, right? And that action would be the incorporation in this muscle protein synthesis. An individual needs between 30, it needs a minimum of 30 grams to create that physiological process. And that is based on leucine, Mm -hmm. which is one of the essential amino acids that skeletal muscle is exquisitely sensitive to. When you hit that, you set up your metabolism appropriately for the whole day. When you hit the 30 to 50 grams. Yes. And this is a bold statement. When you hit the 30 to 50 grams, what happens is, and especially if carbohydrates are controlled, you stimulate muscle protein synthesis and these initiation factors. You are in essence stimulating uh, what would be considered a biomarker for muscle health. That process could go on for two to five hours. Making that stimulation, getting that right, is the most critical. Because we don't really know how important that second meal is. We can argue that the last meal before bed is also important because you're going into an overnight fast. But what we can argue is that that first meal is critical. And when you nail protein, again, we talk about protein as if it's one thing. But protein is 
20 different amino acids, all with unique biological roles. It doesn't have one. They are not interchangeable. The There are the nine essentials, which are the ones that you must eat for. And when it relates to skeletal muscle health, you do need that stimulation of this leucine. That comes from high quality proteins. It is most abundant as all essential amino acids. That would be, say, whey protein, eggs, beef, chicken, turkey, fish, dairy products, Greek yogurt. If an individual is more plant-based, they are going to require, depending on what kind of plant product they're utilizing, they are Uh going to require anywhere from 25 to 35% more of total Uh protein to meet that leucine threshold. Clear glowing skin is something many of us crave. I know I certainly do. And we're always looking for the next cream, serum, or toner to get that fresh face look. But one thing we know for sure is that it's not just what we put on our skin, but it's what we put into our body that has the real impact. That means, yes, you guessed it, good skin always starts with our gut. This is something I passionately believe in because so many elements of our overall well-being actually start in the gut. There is an amazing new regime that I've been using, the first of its kind in fact, that combines these two elements. Bringing together skincare and a supplement routine is a revolutionary step. This was created with the support of Professor Glenn Gibson, who has the most cited nutritional science paper ever written and coined the term prebiotic. The regime includes four hero products and it couldn't be easier. A day pill, a day cream, a night pill and a night cream. And it doesn't just support our skin health. It's even been shown to help support improve sleep, energy, mood, and focus. So you've got two options if you want to give this a go. The regime is a one-time purchase, such good value because it's like getting the supplements for free. Or you can join the You're Looking Well Club where each quarter you'll get a 90-day supply of supplements and cream. But it's not just these products because there's plenty of other benefits such as free facials, yoga classes, Pilates classes, member-only events, and access to a confidential dietitian mailbox. Head to ylwclub.com to upgrade your skincare regime now. Try today and get the first week on us using the code livewell25 at checkout. 30-day money-back guarantee. Mm. Yeah, you've got a whole, well, not a whole thing. You've got like a little box in your book saying that vegetarians consume approximately 65 grams of plant-based protein a day. And you're saying, but this amount is far too low. And I know, and there's two things, gosh, there's so much you say. And I'm like, I don't want to interrupt you, but I've got so much to ask you around this stuff. And I think there's two folds. I really want to touch upon this vegetarian diet quickly because I do know that we speak a lot around plant-based diets on the show as well. We had Dr. Will Boltzowicz on recently talking about gut health and fiber and how that relates. And so there's a lot of different information that we kind of bring onto the show on, you know, have more fiber, have more beans, have more plant-based foods to consume for your gut microbiome. We had Dr. Felice Jackeron talking about food and mood and obviously the connection there via the vagus nerve and how it's really important to have more plant-based foods in your diet. So there's two things. I really want to touch upon that and I really want to talk about the intermittent fasting because you just mentioned there, Lucy, which I found really interesting. So let's just start there on, if people are listening to this and going, okay, protein, and she's just listed lots of animal products there. And then then getting a little bit worried about obviously hearing a lot about the importance of gut health and fiber. What would you say to those listeners who are listening now who are also maybe advocating plant-based? So my question would be, why is it mutually exclusive? Why would it be all or nothing? Both are critical and not interchangeable. I absolutely agree with every statement that you've said about dietary fiber and how important it is to get beans. Beans are a great source of fiber. These are not what I would consider protein sources. They have amino acids, but these are not complete proteins. These are not an, this is not an ideal protein source. And certainly with plant sources of proteins comes a lot of carbs and you have to balance it. I think that we need to have conversations that are inclusive of both because again, both are critical and not interchangeable. The idea that you would have an optimal protein diet and somehow that would mean that you wouldn't have fiber would not be the way that I would think about it. And I also think that we, we have to consider we need both. 40% of women over the age of 65 are not meeting the baseline recommendations of protein. And they're the ones who actually really need it. Right. 
and arguably they're probably not getting enough fiber either. But mm-hmm. when it comes to hierarchy, what is the hierarchy of health and wellness? And the hierarchy of health and wellness for me would be muscle health first. If you eat for muscle health, everything else falls into place. And what does that include? That includes high quality proteins. Could you be vegetarian and get enough protein? Totally. The idea, again, protein is only one macronutrient. There are other things that ride along with dietary protein like creatine and carnitine and anserine and zinc and uh, a whole host of bioavailable vitamins and minerals. That being said, when you eat for muscle health, you also do really well or an individual, if they are exercising, will also do well with carbohydrates, which would be foods that help with the gut microbiome. So could you lay out a really good breakfast? Because obviously this is what you've mentioned is like one of the key things for people when they're thinking about how they're starting the day is having a really good rich protein breakfast. Now, one of our top protein foods in the UK is cereals. And that terrified me when I read that statement. And so this is what's really interesting. Okay, so you're talking about starting breakfast with good protein sources, but the majority of the UK probably start their breakfast with some sugary cereal and toast. So let's try and define what is a healthy protein breakfast to start off with. A great healthy protein breakfast is one that you're going to do. So just so you know, breakfast is the most important meal. And there's a few things that you have to have for breakfast. You have to have protein and you have to have pressure. Protein and pressure. Yeah, you need protein and pressure. That is the breakfast of champions. Dietary protein sources, uh, whey protein would be great. Have a scoop of whey protein, a scoop and a half of whey protein. Have a little Greek yogurt in there. Have some berries. Have a half a cup of berries. Have a cup of berries, depending on what your uh, carbohydrate threshold is. I think that's a great breakfast. If you want a little bit of fat, go ahead, throw five grams of fat in there. Don't overcomplicate it. You could hit a one-to-one ratio of carbohydrates to protein. So if it were me and I was going to make breakfast, I'll tell you what I had for breakfast this morning. I had two Greek yogurt packs, low in sugar, had some berries in it, and I'm good. Super easy. And it's quick. 30 grams of protein, had probably 20 grams of carbs, maybe 30 grams of carbs, a little bit of fat that came in the yogurt, and I'm good to go. Something that I really wanted to pick up on, um, only because we we had it a lot on last season. We had Dr. Sanchi Panda and, and Dr. Mindy Peltz coming on, talking about the importance of fasting. Mindy specifically for women, Dr. Sanji, Dr. Sanchi Panda, obviously known for the 16-8 diet. What's your take on that? Because I find going to find this really interesting because obviously now we're having a conversation around advocating for starting with breakfast, one of the most important day, meals of the day. Most of the studies you're telling me are done at breakfast and that's why this is so important. And it's going to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So all of the things that you're saying on how important our muscle health is, this is when it's going to kickstart. Talk to me a little bit about intermittent fasting on your perspective. I love Sachin Panda, by the way. He actually came on my podcast. He was an amazing guest. And one of the things that we talked about is actually moving the feeding window earlier. I think intermittent fasting, again, rather than the action, what is the outcome that we're looking for? The outcome Mm -hmm. is skeletal muscle health, right? And there are multiple ways to get skeletal muscle health. Well, really, there's only two, which would be resistance training and dietary protein. If you eat earlier on in the day and you train later in the afternoon, those are both ways in which we will push skeletal muscle health. Number one, through dietary protein, and number two, through resistance training. For me, I have many of my patients eat earlier and then include time-restricted feeding. So I agree with Sachin. And they, you know, my patients eat in an eight to nine hour window. Uh, The one thing that Sachin and I didn't uh, totally agree on, and this is purely anecdotally, is that I prefer training in the morning. And he said that the more ideal window to train would be in the afternoon. And I would say, well, it's not going to be ideal if I'm not going to do it. So that was the one thing. Intermittent fasting is a tool. It is a tool for calorie restriction. It is a tool for gastrointestinal health. It is a tool for circadian alignment. There are multiple is ways it? in which one can leverage intermittent fasting and protect skeletal muscle health. I'm just so glad that we're touching on this because it can be so confusing, can't I? I'm sure you can believe for a consumer to be like, oh, I've heard about intermittent fasting and then I've heard about missing breakfast but now I mean told I should eat breakfast and it becomes really confusing. And actually when you lay it out like that and it's actually so much around intermittent fasting isn't just missing breakfast, it's around the time eating window. And I actually remember when he came on, he eats his breakfast at eight, but he finishes his dinner at six. 
And so you still have that window that's still there. And I think that is one of the most important things is just giving yourself a bit of a break, but it's not about having to skip a meal. Right, you don't have to skip a meal. And I think that's really important because so much around this, and I really want to, and we kind of touched upon this at the very beginning, but so much around this is actually kind of talking around this on the impact of actually maybe some people are not eating correctly, they're having crash dieting. And I know that you had an amazing anecdote into how you came into this kind of side and how you really, well, this was basically shining your face from one of your patients called Betsy, which you kind of start the whole beginning of your book on. I'd love for you to explain this to our listeners and, and kind of your kind of real like mission behind this starts with Betsy. Let me start because I bet your audience is younger, right? They're probably younger women. Uh, I'm guessing. I don't know. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Sam is is nodding his head or hanging out there. But <laughs> the real point where health and wellness started is I moved. I graduated high school early. I graduated high school in three and a half years. And I moved in with my godmother, who is a PhD in nutritional sciences. She was the generation before functional medicine became a thing. She was one of the original trailblazers, and her name is Liz Lipsky. Moved in with her and saw the impact of nutritional science on people's lives. I was very into it. It was so funny because uh, if you know me, I'm not woo-woo at all. But I was so into, at the time, I was like, into the colors of the chakra and how are we going to eat for the chakras. I don't think I've ever talked about that ever on any podcast. Oh, my God. Do you know what? So was I. And I've never said that before either. <laughs> Maybe it's a 20 thing. Maybe it's what, it, it's what happens when you're in your 20s. I was like, the blueberries are opening my third eye. It's the purple of indigo. It's the color of indigo. I mean, I was really, really into it. And on a practical level, I saw it transform people's lives. And I became fascinated with nutrition. I thought nutrition was the absolute way that the world was going to change and that people could really become self-sufficient. And this was the way forward. Fast forward to doing my undergraduate in human nutrition, vitamin, mineral metabolism. I met my mentor, Donald Lehman, and he like slapped me figuratively upside the face and was, you know, he would challenge everything I said. And to this day, he would challenge everything I say. Uh, well, why do you believe that? What evidence do you have for that? And um, you have to give me a mechanism of action. And, and it became very, the woo-woo was met with the science. And when that happens, something kind of magical happens. And the woo-woo part of me was still uh, trying to procure vegan, macrobiotic, the perfect food, eating with the seasons. I became so obsessive. I really tried to do everything right in alignment with the seasons. I mean, People thought I was crazy. I had so much anxiety about going out to eat because was this uh, the jasmine rice? It was it infused with the rose that I was supposed to have. I mean, it was this whole thing. And it developed an incredibly disordered relationship with food to the point where it, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. It was obsessive. And I think a lot of people go into nutrition, either they end up that way or they back their way into it because of trying to get something right. And over time, when I started to look at the science and I had these great mentors and I added in appropriate macros where I improved the quality of my diet and I saw changes and I became much less obsessed because I was not uh, chasing blood sugar all day long. I wasn't chasing energy mm. levels all day long. I, It was, you know, dietary protein is a precursor for neurotransmitters. It, it was, it allowed me to manage and mitigate hunger because I don't know if you've ever tried this, um, and I've had patients just a full fruititarian diet. Have you ever just gone purely fruits and vegetables or just totally crazy for a period of time of some just absolutely high carb and carbs only? Have you ever done that? <laughs> I've never done fructarian, but I've <laughs> but no. She's like, I don't. I, she's like, wait, this interview is going no. backwards because I'm the one who's the interviewer. No, I love it. No, um, I've done when I was younger, when I lived in New York, when I went on that like crazy phase, the, all the raw food stuff. Okay. You were starving. Tell me you were not obsessive about food and starving. Oh my God, totally. And it wasn't that. So if you do not have, and I say this um, cautiously, so if you do not have a disordered eating pattern with food, when you choose a dietary pattern that is all or nothing, you develop one. And again, I'm saying this in absolutes. It doesn't have to be that way. But one thing 
for certain is that a high carbohydrate but don't you think but don't you think on that note right and i just want to like really highlight this but i did it because i thought it was amazing for my health like i didn't do it because i was like oh i'm going to be super super thin i did it because of this like massive misinformation of like this is going to be the best thing that you can do for your health and it's going to give you all of these things like like beautiful glossy hair and beautiful skin and actually it did the complete opposite and that's why we all do those things we're doing those things because we want to explore, be the best version of ourselves. And we that's exactly mm-hmm. what I thought I was doing. I remember the first time I mm-hmm. ate chicken, I was like crying. I mean, it was, it's, it's a lot because we are trying to always do the best thing possible. Again, you wanted to talk about Betsy or Betty, whatever, whatever we'll call her. But I think that it's only fair to outline my personal experience. One of the reasons why Betty hit me or Betsy hit me so hard is because I had had my own struggles and my own experience. I went through it, right? So I went through these. I was able to get a handle on it. I was able to get a and an appropriate macronutrient distribution because of the, I don't want to say luxury, but just because I was lucky. I was like, it was, it's mm-hmm. a luxury to have the education that I have. And I was lucky to be in Don Lehman's lab. I was fortunate enough that I could spend the time focused on these studies. I was able to acquire knowledge and fast forward through medical school and then residencies and back to a fellowship. So I then went back to fellowship training after I did all of this medicine, which I think medicine is really my, my wheelhouse is... Um, treating patients, I realized that I needed to go back to the roots of nutritional sciences, that I had done the medicine. And that is all important because in order to create any new concept, in, in order to have any kind of new understanding, one has to grasp conceptually the foundational material, right? We can all agree that you mm-hmm. can't come up with a new concept or you are not primed to do it. But when you have mastery in place and you have foundation in place, you can become creative. And fast forward to going to a fellowship in nutritional sciences at Washington University in geriatrics, which, by the way, I did not want to do. I It was very difficult. Mm. I cried about it. For those of you who are listening, geriatrics is uh, individuals over the age of 65, typically dementia, Alzheimer's. Not saying that once you hit 65, those are the things that happen. But as a geriatrician, your training is in the older adult population, whether it is older adult, end of life. This is transitional times when people are losing their license or can't remember their name, et cetera. It is a very, very challenging time. It was the last thing that I wanted to do. It was probably the most valuable aspect of my entire medical training. Here's why. During the day, I would round in the hospital. I would round in the clinics. I would, uh, on the weekends, go to nursing homes and see extremely severe dementia and depression. Uh, You name it, I saw it. It just is gut-wrenching if you've ever known anyone with dementia. Yeah, my granny had that. I mean, it's brutal, right? It's brutal. mm, You wouldn't wish that on anyone. It's one of the saddest diseases, yeah. Ever. And to watch it. You're probably listening to this show because you care about your health, both physical and mental. That's why I created Live Well, Be Well to share new ways to think about your health. I want to talk to you quickly about something that we all experience, and that is stress. Now, we can all get stressed about a host of things, even the minor things. And stress triggers the primal response. So even simply sitting in a meeting or traffic can trigger this. This brings me on to something called the vagus nerve. And it is incredibly important within the stress response and for calming our primal brains. This device I've been using is called Sensei. Now, it's a wearable touch therapy device. Research has proven that the vagus nerve activation calms the brain medulla responsible for stress and anxiety. Sensei is a device which uses infrasound resonance. And when paired with the sessions in the Sensei companion app, it helps reduce stress and improve overall well-being. In 10 or 30 minute sessions, you can feel an incredible sense of peace, reducing all those small moments of feeling stress or anxiety throughout your day. This device is generally a piece of modern magic and such an exciting step in modern well-being technology. It makes the perfect gift or even better, a self-care purchase. To experience a sense of calm at home, work, or even commuting with your busy lifestyle, just go to getsensate.com and use the code Sarah Ann to get 10% off your first order. 
you know, it's one thing to physically suffer and it's another to mentally suffer because for individuals who have experienced people who have had dementia, depending on the kind, there is a mood component. They are very scared. They're very confused. It's it's horrifying to watch and there's nothing that you can do. It's not like heart failure or um, breaking a leg. It is a brain and brain failure is devastating because it's an organ system as well. In the early mornings, I was doing nutritional science research because that's what I really loved. I, I love nutritional science. I would do whatever the project that we were working on, whether it was VO2 max testing, whether it was biopsies, muscle and fat biopsies, etc. There were multiple different studies going on at, at the, the time. And as a fellow, as a research fellow, my responsibility was also to create a project. My project was looking at body composition and brain function. And it was an offshoot of another project that we were working on because the lab was very robust and there's multiple PhDs uh, working on different projects. And I fell in love with Betsy. Betty, we'll call her Betty. Amazing, right? Mom of three, we all have a Betty in our life. Just amazing. Just putting herself last and just a complete rock star. She'd always struggled with the same 20 pounds. The yo-yo dieter, the, um, what, a, what you know, Weight Watchers, etc. Just oh, good, yeah. The she was a later version of you. Don't exercise, eat less, uh, don't resistance train, but do some cardiovascular activity. Mm -hmm. She had gotten the same advice that you got. I imaged her brain because we were do looking at body composition and brain function. And in order to be in the study, you had to be overweight. You, know, you weren't diabetic, but you could be pre-diabetic, but you had at least thirty percent body fat. I imaged her brain, and her brain looked like an early Alzheimer's brain. And I was like, we failed her. This is the best that we can do. This is the information that we're giving people. We completely destroyed her muscle and in the process destroyed her brain. To say I was devastated, it would have been an understatement. I was to my stomach. I was beside myself. I felt responsible. I felt like what we were doing was wrong. And if you've ever had that experience, you know you cannot just sit with that. You have to find a solution or you're part of the problem. You become a, a reflection of a bigger problem if you do nothing. So I kept thinking, what is, what am I seeing here? What are we missing? Why are we telling her to eat less and exercise more? Follow the food guide pyramid. What are we actually doing? And what, what is the one thing that all these patients have in common? What are we missing? And I, it probably should have come to me earlier because Dr. Donald Lehman, who my book is dedicated to, is one of the world-leading protein experts. I realized that the one thing that my sickest patients had in common going from the nursing home to the hospital bed to palliative care to obesity medicine research and you know evening meetings of it was that they all had unhealthy skeletal muscle and then it wasn't a fat problem i've been trying to fix the fat problem for 50 years and in the process have destroyed the lives of millions and that is why i wrote the book because i realized that we had been focusing on the wrong thing and that we are not over fat and that we are under-muscled, and muscle is the organ of longevity. And that had we corrected Betty's muscle, she wouldn't have had all these metabolic derangements. We would have protected her metabolism. We would have protected her body. We would have protected her brain. One of the challenging parts about society and culture is repetition. And when we hear something enough, we assume and expect that it is true. Repetition implies truth. But it doesn't. Repetition is solely repetition. Truth begets truth. And we had been looking at the wrong paradigm. We'd been trying to fix the wrong problem. Fixing the fat problem is the wrong problem to fix. To circle back to the beginning, it's not about what we have to lose. It's what we have to gain. And you build a reservoir of physical sturdiness first. And that's why I wrote the book. And that's why the book is called Forever Strong. Because it's never too late. And this is information that is evidence-based. And it's for everybody. It's empowering for everybody because everybody has a Betsy in their life. Everybody has someone in their life that needs to know it, whether it's them or someone they love. And the world is ready for us to become strong and anti-fragile and capable. Man, I hate Rex Betsy's read your book. I wrote a book, but the book isn't about the book. The book is about the message. And this is a movement. We literally can change the conversation of medicine and aging. 
but it only happens one way and that's if we do it together and this is why i love and the end of your book because it's about starting the conversation right and that's what you've dedicated this whole book to but so much around this conversation. And I love that you went off and did psychiatry. I went off and looked at eating disorders afterwards. I studied nutritional science because I really believed that just seeing my patients, I had to understand also where their mindset was. It's so fundamentally important. And it really inspired me that you had gone off and seen this approach. And you've got this amazing part in your book, which really stood out to me. And it's around the five fundamental attributes for a mindset reset. And everything you're saying, I really hope will inspire people, right? That they can actually have a, they, choice is, is a very complex word, I find. But everyone can start somewhere. And having this information available is really helpful to people. But so much about what stops this friction, this barrier approach into these is our mindset, right? It's our self-talk, is that we're not good enough. We're not worth it. Women have this, I feel, so much more, especially around health, like the shame of going to a gym because they feel it's like a very macho area of lifting weights. I mean, I'm young and I still get that fear of walking in to a gym surrounded by men. And I'm like, oh, I don't feel like I belong here. You know, having that mindset reset, which you called, and I really want to quickly touch upon these five fundamental approaches that you have tell me your favorite attribute which was your favorite attribute resilience because it's one of my seven pillars oh one of my seven pillars of health is emotional resilience because it's one of the biggest moments in my life pivots in my life is understanding that and i don't think we are ever taught about that at school and Mm. it's not just within nutrition and health it's a concept that we just need i think for like our own self-care is resilience understanding how we build that because it's a muscle that well God, I can't, ironic. It's a muscle that can be built, but it is. And I think like that is something that really stood out to me as a woman mm. in your book when I was reading it. And so many times we navigate health to longevity just in kind of like these very core physical concepts. We don't talk about the emotional resilience and the connection that we can do to get there. The mindset is so essential to the long lasting change, right? All Yo-yo diets, everything that Betsy went through. It's all these like short-term fixes. It's everything. And that's one of the things I think makes the book so unique is, again, the science is is really great and the information is very transparent and brought to the forefront in a way that I would say it's never been before. People typically don't know the history of nutrition, et cetera. But the other thing that makes the book very special is I have been seeing patients since 2006 and I have seen some of the most incredible people over time. And what makes a good physician is someone who can recognize patterns of disease, right? A good psychiatrist can recognize patterns of mental illness. But what makes an effective physician is someone who can recognize patterns of people. I believe that because I have had and do have the privilege of seeing thousands and thousands of patients and individuals that really are exceptional, that what you begin to see is that Individuals at the top and those that are striving and those that are just extraordinary have similar attributes. Resilience is one. And there's another one that I don't know if this made it into the book or not, but it did. But I don't know if it made it into the attribute section, but there's a neutrality. People will often say what makes... No, it didn't. It didn't. Okay, good. Well, this is... Courage, perseverance, self-discipline, adaptability, and resilience. Okay. So give us the extra one. What makes greatness? Is greatness resilience? Is it discipline? Is it execution? Is it courage? But at the root of that is probably neutrality, that those at the top do not go too high or too low, that there is very little narrative about what their experience is, whether it is good or it is bad. There's very little storytelling that exists. And what that does is it frees up space in the mind to allow for whatever is the outcome. But the individual is not attached to the outcome. I'll I'll give you an example. My husband. My husband was a former SEAL. He was in the Navy for 10 years. is now a first-year surgical resident, which means he works 100 hours a week, maybe more. And I've never actually heard him complain. He's working 100 hours a week. If it were me, I would be bitching and complaining. He's waking up at 4 in the morning to go work out before he then goes to round and then is home home yesterday like eight. When I asked him, I, you know, I said, could you, doesn't this suck? He's like, no. I'm like, don't you hate it? 
isn't it awful? He's like, nah, this is just, you know, it's just the thing, just executing on the thing. And he's neutral. But the neutrality makes him able to be at the top. Because think about it. If I was bitching and complaining and you were bitching and complaining, because let's, let's, let's be real. The amount of energy that that would take, the amount of uh. focus it would take away from the actual execution of the outcome that we're looking for would be tremendous. So when people are neutral, it allows them to be disciplined because there isn't a conversation about it. Think about when you're scrolling through social media. If you are going for the dopamine hit or comparing yourself, that's not neutrality. Quite frankly, subtly over time takes you away from your ultimate goal or outcome and it becomes very distracting. Maybe not distracting, maybe distracting in the immediate, but maybe also distracting in the long term. It also erodes resiliency because resiliency means you have to be resilient against something else. If you were neutral, then there is a natural amount of courage that would come from neutrality. And so that is what I was not able to put in the book, which will be in the next book. When's that coming out? When can we read more about neutrality? Oh, um, I think by January of next year. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. Well, I, I think what I love about this book, right, basically is the, it's the last part. And I'm just like, this just feels so real. Um, because you go into the acknowledgements and you go into this amazing appendix of like everything. If everyone's like, oh God, I just want some recipes from you. It's in your book, right? You've got like so mm -hmm. many different ideas and recipes. But the last subtitle in your book is what if I fall off? And the first line is don't be an asshole to yourself. It's done. In my practice, I've seen patients continue to beat themselves up daily for falling off their plan. This never ends well. And I just think that's so important that anyone trying anything new, right? It's never going to go perfect. Life is this not perfect journey. I'm sure that your husband finds it right. hard, right? Well, but he's not like going to be an asshole to himself about it. No. Are you kidding? Short-term memory. It allows for neutrality. And also it's human beings are such interesting creatures. They're shocked by their own predictability every single time. Let me give you an example, my friend. Tomorrow morning, guess what? I'm going to bitch and complain that I have to wake up to go work out. I promise you, I'm going to work out anyway. Do you know how I know that I'm going to bitch and complain and try to talk myself out of it? Because I did it the day before. I did it the day before. I also did it the day before. And every morning, I'm shocked when I wake up about how I'm trying to talk myself out about, oh, I'm just going to cancel with Carlos. I'm not going to head over to Sigma. I'm, I'm totally canceling. And I'm shocked by it. Oh, I can't believe you thought that way. Human beings are shocked by their own predictability. Stop being shocked by it. The alternative is this perspective that we are shocked by our own self. Surprise. It's not surprising. You know exactly. You are just failing to bring it into the forefront because it just takes too much effort. So do not be shocked by your own predictability. Plan for your predictable nature. Then by doing so, you leverage your own weaknesses. You are not shackled by them. You expect them and you know how to navigate them. The, the best way to har harbor regret is to be continually surprised by the way that you are and to not know yourself. Can you the biggest lesson we can do yes. is to understand who we are, right? Yeah, and who you want to be. You know, you've just mentioned a second book. So now we're going to have to make a next date for you to come back on and talk about this. Yeah. Um, and carry on this conversation. But I want to know, like, from this book, and I mean, honestly, like, I, I read this in two days. And I was really thankful that you managed to send it to me because it was a ridiculously long wait list. So make sure in the show notes that you kind of get on it now because it might be a, a few days for it to come. Um, but I want you to tell me and our listeners what do you believe and this is actually a really nice question on what you just said on neutrality and how we talk to ourselves and how to not be hard on ourselves and how to kind of you know not be shocked by this predictable mindset that we can all have what is the one question that you believe that we should ask ourselves daily to stay aligned with our goals are your actions representative of the person you wish to become and i think a lot about this from I, a mentor and friend of mine, uh, Mark Devine. He's a, a former commander SEAL. You know, we, we've talked a lot over the years. And one of the things that was always very valuable is he says, you know, my, my actions, I have to, to meet a why with my action. So if I'm going to be doing an action, what is the why that I'm meeting it with? Why am I actually doing that? And is this action, this time, this um, behavior bringing me closer to the person I want to become? Am I taking an action that is worthy of the person that I want to become. 
Do you know what? Ask yourself why is one of my biggest values on whenever I do something. And I think we're never really taught that. We sometimes just go through this thing of like, we have to do all of these things. We have to tick all of these boxes. And actually the biggest thing is like, why are you doing that towards any health behavior, right? So lastly, Gabrielle, I want to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests. And I've only ever had once over like 250 people on the show say the same answer. So I'm interested to see what yours is on this. No, I cannot find my socks. Is that it? No, I do not know where all my right and left socks are. And that was a horrible idea that they even have socks, which one says right and one says left. Was that the question and answer? I mean, I didn't even have matching socks, so I'm even worse. Um, (laughs) But no, the question is, and it it could involve socks. I'm not going to throw that. I'm going to throw that out there. It can involve socks if you want to. But the question is, what does live well, be well mean to you? Yeah, live well, live well, be well starts with family. And it starts with knowing what really matters. And what really matters, those are things that are not um, negotiated for. Living well is truly being a family member, a stand-up individual, and um, showing up for fellow humans. Living, living well, if I were to sum it up in one word, is to be of service. I love that. We've had one other person say to be of service. And so much about health is connection, I believe. Connection to ourselves and connection to one another. And we kind of can't live without that. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. So fun. By the way, you know, we're having an event in January. You should come on down. January 13th Tell us and 14th. More. In Austin, I know you're in the UK, but you could set up and podcast from there. I am coming to America in February, so maybe I just come a bit earlier and come over to Austin. Let me tell you where people can find me. You guys can find me on drgabriellelyon.com. We have a free community. We have over 4,000 people in a free community. I'm in there answering questions. My team is in there answering questions. It's on a Mighty Network community. It's amazing. We do Zoom calls. We all know each other. It's phenomenal, especially if you care about community. People can apply to be part of the practice. You'll find all that information. Of course, there's Forever Strong, all of the links. I have a podcast called The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show. I'm on Instagram. I'm marginally on Twitter. And I'm on YouTube. Right. I'm going to write all of that in the show notes in case everyone was trying to scribble it down as you were saying it. It's going to be in the show notes below. And this is also going to be on YouTube. So we're going to also give you the YouTube link as well Gabriella we'd love you to post it on your on your community tab so you can share it with your fantastic audience too just to hear all about your story I will do that that's a great idea we'd love that thank you so much for coming on and I am already excited about booking you in for your next book which sounds extraordinary I can't wait to hear all about it feels like a lot about mindset which is uh which is one of my favorites <laughs> <laughs>